The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Part on a study today of a topical nature, not a single book of Scripture, but a topic. And the question, who is this, actually dominates that topic. Uh, I don't simply preach to you random things that occur to me on Friday afternoon. There's always a plan. Most of the time, the plan, as you know, if you've been with us, is a biblical book that we work our way through. But I've been doing things topically more recently. I went to the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis because I wanted to stress the theological subject of the providence of God working even in evil circumstances. And we saw that in several weeks looking at Joseph. I wanted to be sure that I stressed to you another topic, the sovereignty of God in our salvation from eternity past to eternity future. And we saw that with five weeks in the first chapter, just the first 15 verses, actually, of the book of Ephesians. And now I come to a topic that will take, by my organization anyway, 12 weeks and take me rather close to the time when I will retire from being your preacher. And it's the greatest topic there could possibly be. Who is Jesus? Who is this one called the Christ? I'm going to explore 12 different texts with you. They'll all be rather familiar, but you probably never had them put together in this combination as I seek to do, uh, just in this way. And I hope that as I prepare to be parted from you in retirement, that a permanent long-term impression of who Jesus Christ is will not be able to be missed by anyone. Listen as I read from Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's picking up someone in the middle of a thought with a pronoun, and the pronoun he, I need to make sure you know who it refers to. If you go back two verses, you see that it refers to God's beloved Son. I'll actually read forward there from verse 14. God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of our God. A wonderful event is told about in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We call the event the Transfiguration. I imagine you know the Bible well enough to perhaps picture the way in which three inner circle disciples were taken by Jesus to a hill. The point was to get aside and pray without all of the others with them, to allow them a particular view of something. And they saw something that was beyond human description that day as Jesus was praying, we're told by the three gospel reports, that his face was altered and his clothing even shined dazzling white. This was not a natural event. It was a miracle. And somehow men who lived in the first century recognized two personalities that they never could have met because they lived centuries before. They would not know who these people were except that God the Spirit revealed to them that it was Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus and speaking to him about what it says in the text, his departure soon to occur. That was his cross. And after the three disciples uttered their awe and astonishment and said, oh, Lord, let us just stay here forever. This is the most perfect thing that ever could have happened. And Jesus said, no, it's not meant for you to stay this way. The two ancient figures disappeared. And in the King James language, it has a sort of ringing short phrase. It says, they then saw Jesus only. Sermons have been given that title from that text, Jesus only. In other words, after a brief cameo appearance, the two greatest personalities of the Old Testament who were the head of the law and the head of prophecy spoke to the one who inherited all the lines of law and prophecy converging upon him and having discussed what they had to say about his great epic adventure just lying ahead, they departed and there was only Jesus Christ left. Jesus Christ preeminent. Jesus Christ only. And because of that, we see that all the law and all the prophecy of the Scripture converges upon him. He alone was left standing. Well, I'm not preaching to you about the transfiguration today. That's only spoken of as an opening to what we want to say. A supernatural event showcased the utter uniqueness of Christ, and thereby it introduces what I have said would be, I hope, a series of 12 messages leading into February, Lord willing, in which we would talk about Jesus only. The one problem is there's so much to talk about. We could easily go past February and past June and past September, and we'd be back in another November still speaking about important texts of the Scripture that tell about that one great subject. There's so many places, I, instead of 12 sermons, I could have said, I'm going to preach you 50. I'm going to preach you 250. And I wouldn't cover all the important things that the Scripture has to say about him. We could begin with this huge subject in different places, but I 
chose after prayer and shuffling. I had 12 things written on cards and refined it to 12 and then had to work through what order would they be in. And I felt the Lord said Colossians first. Because Colossians 1 is a passage that is so dominant and so broad in what it says about Christ. It reaches all the way back to creation and all the way forward to his reconciling work of the cross, making peace by the blood of his cross. I felt this was the place to start. Christ, the image of the invisible God, Paul wrote, the firstborn of creation by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and skipping down to 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What could possibly be said about an individual person of history that is any bigger than that? As Paul wrote to the Colossian believers already in the first century, he knew that there were churches where people were going astray, where believers were accepting false teaching. And it came often as just a wrong emphasis and maybe just a slight shade off of some doctrine, but then it got worse and it departed more and more. And as the early church dealt with error and heresy, almost always it was something wrong in the department of who is he, who is Jesus, what is he, Ideas about Christ were where all the early, you study church history and they're going to have you study the early church councils where various leaders from all over came together and and had to debate and work their way through what the scriptures said and, and how this worked out. And all the early councils, almost without exception, were about what we call Christology. Who is Christ? What is Christ? What has he done? What did God send him to do and how should we understand it? And Paul already understood at his point early in that early century that if we go wrong about him, we go wrong completely. And so he wrote here at the inspiration of God that Christ, in verse 15, is the image of the invisible God. What an enormous claim. The Bible freely acknowledges that God is invisible. He doesn't have a face. That's why the ancient command is not to worship images that would depict God in a physical way. I have a Rembrandt print in my office of Christ done by the great artist Rembrandt who I think possibly did the the best job ever with faces of Jesus because he took Jewish peasants from the slums, not rich men with perfume in their beards, but peasants, and depicted them in his art. Did he have an exact picture of Christ? No. Do I worship the picture that Rembrandt produced? Absolutely not. But I do value it as a work of human art. John 1.18 said, No man has ever seen God, but God... The only Son, or one translation says God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He's the image of the invisible God. The word for image in the Greek is the word icon. It it talks about a reproduction or a visible picture 
of something else, icon. Don't we, when we look at a new baby, whether it's a grandchild or a neighbor's child or somewhere else, people always have to say, oh, he's got his father's eyes. Oh, it's his mother's face for sure. We're saying that baby is the icon of its parent. If you went to the U.S. Mint, I've never had the privilege of visiting there. I want to someday. But if you go to the Mint, as I understand it, you could probably see a a room where coins are being stamped out by the thousands and millions. And I'm sure there's a machine. I haven't seen it, but I can imagine there has to be a machine with a die that stamps out quarters so that George Washington's head is being reproduced, the icon of George Washington is being precisely reproduced as millions of metal blanks are having a stamp put upon it. That's somewhat a comparison of what we're talking about here. Not a facial likeness of Jesus Christ, but an icon that the text is saying that the character attributes, the mind, the heart, the love, the wisdom, the mercy, the grace, the compassion, the truth of God. These things are stamped on Jesus Christ. And if you would see who and what God is, you can look at Christ. That's what we're being told here. Jesus the Son shows us the qualities of God the Father as no other person could possibly do. Interesting, the other statement that's here that calls him the firstborn of creation. Maybe you think that's just the obvious thing. Jesus of Nazareth was the first child of Mary, his mother. Of course, we'll believe he was divinely the, not the child of Joseph. But Mary and Joseph later had other children, the Bible says. So it's just saying Jesus was the first of a string of children to Mary. No, not exactly. It's saying that Jesus was in his supremacy and in his greatness, by far the first and the greatest of the children. The firstborn, in fact, not just of Mary's children, but of all children ever born anywhere, of any parentage. I have an older sister, a younger sister, and a much younger brother. So I'm the oldest son, but I'm not the oldest child. But if I lived in the first century, I could have been called firstborn because the the word actually meant the one who was the family leader. And as the oldest son, I would be in those times and the law as it went then, I would be the leader of the family even though my sister is older. The term firstborn in ancient days denoted the supremacy of the son of the family who was the leader for the future. Well, we need to understand that Paul was writing under the Holy Spirit's inspiration when he made these claims about Christ here. And they were bold claims. I mean, I I still today, with many, many years of hopefully maturation in Christian faith and familiarity with the Scripture, read what is written here and, and hear Paul say, Christ is the image of the invisible God. And I say, wow, Paul... Either you're right, or or that is the boldest kind of folly that can possibly be imagined. Well, we think he's right. We think he's correct when he's saying Christ is the visible representation of the invisible creator God. 
Jesus Christ was God. You can't say it any any more clearly than Paul said it here. Now consider what a bold thing that is to say. Put alongside it, Jesus himself making such a claim, a similar claim, when he told people in his teaching, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They killed him for that. That was blasphemy to a religious Jew. The man was saying, I am God. And they killed him. And they thought they had done a good deed, defending the honor of God against a blasphemer. You must recognize that Christianity stands upon a radical, revolutionary platform, and the claims are nothing short of amazing. A man who walked this earth in first century Palestine, never rising in his occupation above the station of a carpenter, never having higher education or any degrees after his name, was God. I finished teaching the new members class in one of the earliest lessons. We say, well, what, what, how, where does Christianity really begin, regardless of your denomination or anything else? What's the earliest, simplest creed you can learn? It's just a few words. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is preeminent. He is in supremacy of all ranks and all stations and all thrones and all powers that have ever lived anywhere on this earth. That's what we Christians are saying. No wonder the agnostics laugh at us. To them, our claims are absurd. We will be using in the month of December, as we always do here, we've done it all the years I've been here, using the Nicene Creed in the month of December. It's an ancient creed, just as old as the Apostles' Creed. We use it in December because of its strong emphasis on Christ. And one of the phrases that it has is so catches my attention every time we say it when we confess that Jesus Christ is very God of very God. There seems to be something wonderful contained in those words. You know C.S. Lewis was the writer who made Christianity popular in England and America quite a long time ago now, mid-20th century, early 20th century. And one of the things that Lewis said that caught the attention of many is in his book, Mere Christianity, was his saying that, that people would take Jesus and rank him that many of his fellow Englishmen would say, oh, yes, of course, Jesus, great man, great man. Why, he's right up there with Buddha. He's right up there with Muhammad. He's right up there with the greatest wise men, Plato, Aristotle. And C.S. Lewis said, what utter nonsense. What utter nonsense. He said, you cannot rank Jesus that way if you consider his self-claims. When he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he was shutting off all such option for you to say, even to say Jesus is the first among that great gallery of wise philosophers. No, he denied you that option. He said, with the things Jesus claimed about himself, either he is a madman on par with the person who says he is Napoleon Bonaparte or a poached egg, or he is the Christ of God. And if he is not that, then lock him up because he's a fool of the first order. 
In Hebrews 1.3, another New Testament author wrote to say, the Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That author in Hebrews, I think, was saying, when God looks in the mirror, Jesus is what he sees. Well, that's the supremacy that the Bible claims for Christ. It's no small thing. And you, if you are perhaps a seeker, perhaps someone who has not committed your life to Christ as Lord, I need to tell you, stand back and think carefully before you commit yourself, before you take membership vows like these folks have taken and say, I'm without hope in this world unless God should help me. And the way in which he's helped me is by sending his son to a cross and to rise again. And in that I lodge all my hopes. That's what a Christian says. If you've never said that, I say to you, stand back and be careful before you make vows to Christianity. Because you are saying what is absolutely revolutionary, that the living God came upon this planet and walked in the person of Jesus Christ and offered himself as a saving atonement for the sins of all who put their trust in him. It's a marvelous claim that you're making. Well, secondly, besides his preeminence in relation to God the Father, that he was God, secondly, I believe the only other point I offer today is this one, that Colossians 1 ranks Jesus in another way, in preeminence as the source and purpose of creation itself. Now, there's a great mystery involved here. It doesn't really spell it out. It just claims it. It doesn't say, well, here, refer to these 10 verses that will tell you what Christ was doing in the creation. It doesn't say that that much detail. It just says he was there at the creation. He was involved. We don't know exactly how, but being God, he didn't have a beginning. There wasn't a day that Jesus was suddenly, or Christ was suddenly born in, in the you know, timeless eternity, and well, now he's here, and he wasn't here before. No, he was there. He was involved from the beginning. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 stresses this involvement of Christ in the creation. By him, all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, angels, all things created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. Genesis one twenty six describes that work of God when man was made, and it's a most curious thing if you've never been told this or noticed it before. Plural pronouns, God speaking. It says, let us make man in our image. Hebrew is an extremely precise language. Hebrew plural pronouns. Us make man in our image. What is that? But the communion of the three-person God at creation. In fact, in in Genesis 1-2, the very opening of the whole Bible, it speaks of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. The Trinity involved in creation Long before the birth of an infant named Jesus in Bethlehem, the one we would call the cosmic Christ, was shaping galaxies and weaving strands of DNA so as to differentiate a rhesus monkey from a man. DNA 
is different between a monkey and a man. And actually, we pity people who are unable to see that. One commentator said, Every form of matter, whether simple or complex, whether an atom or a distant star, whether our sun or a clod of dirt, every order of intellect and creature of the deep sea and the splendor of constellations and the greening woods of early spring, these all are products of the work of Christ, who apparently was the Father's construction supervisor in the realm of physical creation. I actually, I hope it does not sound like overweening pride. And I respect science, and I respect those who are scientists. But in one way, I cannot respect them, and that is to respect the scientist who has sold his soul to the theory, and it's nothing but a theory, of blind, fatalistic evolution. That all things came into being by mere chance and survival of the fittest, and so on and so on, I wonder why these guys don't simply read the books of intelligent design sometime and understand the huge holes and gaps that there are in evolutionary theory. Is there microevolution? Yes, indeed there is. Micro. Do you understand that difference? Microevolution describes the difference between myself and my father. I used to be six feet tall. I'm shrinking, but now they say I'm 5'11". But my father was five foot seven. I wear a size 11 shoe. My father wore a size 6 shoe. Look at a horse. What does paleontology tell us? That horses were once the size of a dog. Now we'll look at them. That's microevolution. Development that happens. Natural development. We can prove that that happens. Macroevolution is the problem. When people say that any animal or any being crosses over species line that a lizard becomes a mammal. Nope. Not one fossil ever proves that. Ever, ever, ever. There's no fossil to show that that is true. Nowhere. No transitional fossils to show that one species evolves into another. No lizard ever became a beaver. No ape ever became a man. Man and woman are God's special creations. And that we can believe, and we are not fools in the scientific world when we say it. It's Christ, verse 17 says, that is holding this universe together. All the natural operations by which things are sustained and can be predicted and happen so marvelously. Do you really believe in the goddess Mother Nature? Who is Mother Nature anyway? What is it that makes the tides come and go, the ocean tides so predictably that ships can know exactly when it's high tide or low tide? What is it that informs a grizzly bear that it's time to go to den and take the cubs and then emerge again from that den in the spring? What in the world is it? Did you ever think about this simple fact that in the fall the seasons are changing? I just saw a V-shaped flock. I don't know if they were geese or what they were, but I just saw them from afar coming here this morning. And I thought, what in the world makes them know where they're going? And if they're bound from Canada for somewhere in South America, the ornithologists tell us they they have a particular breeding ground one place and a particular gathering place in the other continent, and they go year by year, and they know exactly where they're going, and they don't get lost traveling 7,000 miles. Oh, that's Mother Nature. 
Thanks, Mother Nature. You sure are smart. The Scripture says Christ holds together all the things that he has made, and he is reconciling all the fragmented pieces of the creation by his upholding power and his designer's wisdom. A scientist who is also a theologian wrote this, I quote, In the last 200 years, he said, man has explained the world in terms of impersonal physics, and we find we are left with a cold mechanical universe in which humanity finds no ultimate meaning or purpose. However, Scripture tells us the supreme fact to realize about created reality that it is not ultimately about a mathematical formula, sorry, Mr. Einstein, but a grand, triumphant person, the Christ of God. Jesus Christ is the center, the foundation, the crown, the keystone, the apex of all things. Verse 16 here says something more that we could spend a whole sermon on, that the creation was made for Him, not just by Him, for Him, for the purpose of acting as a stage of His redemption and His reconciliation of all things that will come about one day in what the Bible calls the new heaven and the new earth. I've got just one question of application for you. Is it possible that your idea of Christ has been far too puny and limited to match the Scripture? Yes, you trust Christ as Lord and Savior who went to a cross and and rose again to give you new life, and that's good. I'm sure glad you do that. But is it possible that your knowledge of Christ is tiny and limited compared to this great being that the Bible presents to you. I close with a man named Samuel Rutherford. Some of you may know who he is. He was a Scotsman who lived 400 years ago, a Presbyterian minister, as a matter of fact, in the earliest days of Presbyterians, a man who fearlessly preached the gospel and was put in jail for it for years. And he corresponded with his former congregation and many Christian friends from jail and sent letters that are rich and powerful. By the way, Rutherford also wrote a book called Lex Rex, The Law is King, back in days when everybody thought that the king was the law. And Rutherford said, no, it's just the other way around. And his book was the foundational document of constitutional democracy to many political theorists. But here's Rutherford, imprisoned, writing letters. You can get the letters of Samuel Rutherford. They're wonderful. If you want a devotional uh, piece of literature that is it's written in Elizabethan language. He doesn't speak the way you and I speak, but they're wonderful. They will light up a, a flame of passion for Christ under you. Here's some things that Rutherford said about Jesus Christ. This is a man who had a big Christ. Oh, he said with an exclamation mark, oh, who of us can add anything to this most high Christ who is that great all, A-L-L capitals, in all. If he were to create suns, moons, and a thousand times more glorious heavenly bodies than what we have today, Rutherford said they would never begin to make a perfect resemblance to the infinite excellency, order, beauty, and sweetness 
that we already possess in our Christ. And he went on to say this, Oh, how little of Christ do we presently see. Oh, he said, how shallow are our best thoughts of him. How sweet. Think of it. Here's a prisoner who's not allowed to to go outside of jail for years, and he said, how sweet are the chains I wear for my royal king, bearing this jailer's yoke of prison for Christ is to me such a burden as wings are to a bird or sails to a ship. That man had a big Christ. I hope that your understanding of him will grow larger as we look further at the scriptures together. Our Father, we have not begun to put our feet upon the territory that is marked as the territory of Jesus Christ and his personality, his mind, his heart, all that he is, his power. Father, we hope and we pray that by your direction we would see him in Scripture in these next weeks in a new way as we never have before. To your praise and your glory and honor. Amen.